0: This
1: is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. And for a second time, the sequel, Dr. Andy Kaufman. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. <laughs>
0: well, it's great to be back with you.
1: You know, I was just saying to you now a moment ago. Uh, when you were last on my podcast about a year ago, um, I was ill-prepared and I also didn't know about the paradigm shift that was coming because I couldn't wrap my head around what it is that you were talking about. And let me just say up front, because of that conversation, I ended up reading um, a book called or Pasteur. Um, yes. And then after that, I read a, a very thick book called Virus Mania by Torsten Engelbrecht and um, Sam Bailey and a few others. And unfortunately, Andy, I have you to blame for this traumatic (laughs) mind shift that's occurred
0: well you know guilty is charged and i mean this is really the the biggest compliment that you could uh pay to me and i know it is a lot to take in at first um Mm. you have to you know let it sink in wrap your head around it and then of course you read some of the uh you know the books that i would most highly recommend as a way to look at you know i mean the the entire uh body of material really in this field because i mean virus mania is you know quite expansive um also don uh lester and david parker's book what really makes you ill uh mm-hmm. you know is another one that uh you can dive into and spend the next 12 months reading <laughs> if you if you well, go cover to cover
1: i know that uh, your time is very limited today uh so let's let's quickly get into some of the some of the media. um so Let's start at the very basics. What is virology?
0: Yeah, well, you know, the whole field of science these days, in in the academic setting, is very compartmentalized, right? So within biology, you have these different, you know, subfields, right? Like, I mean, for example, you might have and entomology, the study of insects, right? Then you you have molecular biology, you have cell biology, immunology microbiology, and then, you know, virology is one field, and it's actually quite a small field. And they're really, you know, pretty much studying these nanoscopic particles that they say are causing diseases. And then, of course, that's intimately involved with vaccine. So vaccine research. So you could say it's like research on these certain diseases that are said to be attributable to viruses and on vaccines related to those diseases is really the main scope of what's covered in virology.
1: I suppose then that the next question is
0: then what is a virus? Absolutely. So the, their definition of a virus and there's different ways this is phrased, but I like the Bailey's um, who I know have been on your show, have talked about that it's a replication competent particle (laughs) Uh, right, that that exists in nature, and as a you know individual entity, and then it's capable of causing some kind of disease, and so what that means is that it's a particle on the the order of magnitude of you know nanometers or 100 nanometers or uh, you know that that range, and that it. Essentially can replicate itself not independently, but using the host cell machinery So the theory that's proposed is that these particles invade some type of cell uh, of a mammal Right like a human uh, Or perhaps other species like even plants, but they invade that cell that's the host cell and then they use that cells machinery to uh, replicate or make copies of themselves And then they come out of that host cell and then invade other host cells and continue to replicate. And that's their life cycle, essentially. So why is it um, nonsense? Well, uh, it's nonsense because they simply have never, ever actually shown this particle to even exist or to carry out any of the functions that they say it does with respect to how it causes illness.
1: But they will argue that... It's as simple as that. Oh, but they'll, but they'll, but they'll argue that that's not true. For example, let's talk about SARS-CoV-2. Uh, there are a few papers that say, well, they have isolated.
0: Yes. Well, so in 1954, um, a famous scientist, in fact, he won a Nobel Prize by the name of John Franklin Enders. He developed a manufacturing technique to make the polio vaccine and this was what got him the Nobel Prize and led to the fame of some other people with respect to the polio vaccine. But he then took the manufacturing process, and what that was was to essentially take diseased tissue from someone with polio, and then instead of trying to put it back into nerve cells, because polio was said to infect nerve cells, right? It, it causes a spinal cord lesion, which results in paralysis. And so they were trying to culture nerve cells like spinal cord cells in the laboratory and then take disease tissue from someone who died of polio and, you know, culture it. In other words, get it to replicate in the process I described in those nerve cells. And they thought it was specific that it would only grow in those kind of cells. And that's why it caused that disease. But Ender's took a chance and tried to do that process, but use embryonic cells. So in other words, cells from an aborted fetus. And he found that he could, um, you know, what he thought was grow it in that type of a cell culture, which means when he added the tissue from someone who died of polio to a culture of these embryonic cells, that he saw the cells were damaged. And that was evidence to him that there was a, you know, a virus that was growing in the cells. And so he was able to use that to manufacture the toxic soup that is called the polio vaccine and applied that same procedure to measles in ni- in his 1954 paper, but this time not to make a vaccine, but to study the measles virus. But in that paper, he also, did samples that didn't contain measles, and they they gave the same outcome in the cell cultures, called cytopathic effects, and he mentions this in the paper. But he, and in that paper, by the way, he never says that this experiment proves that there's a virus in the sample. Um, he was just using it to understand, try to understand what happens in someone who has measles. Right, not to prove he, you know, they'd already just accepted there was a measles virus at that time without direct proof. So then somehow that experiment became adopted and known as an isolation experiment, even though Enders didn't propose it as that. And of course, they had to change the definition of what isolation means to do that, because what they're really saying is that they're taking a sample that they believe has a virus in it so in other words the snot from someone with a disease and then they're they're you know c- growing it in a cell culture they think that the virus in the sample is invading the cells in the culture and making copies of itself but the thing is they they've never actually shown that there's an actual particle that they can purify and characterize now they show that when you have a toxic cell culture there are particles it's just that we, we know that any cells that are dying um, put out particles and we know that there's some of them at least are exosomes which just are a natural product of disease. You know just like think of them as like cellular snot and you know when you're sick you make snot and your cells make their own snot and they're these little particles. And there's no way, they've never shown that any of those particles is actually a virus or is capable of causing a disease. Uh, but they show pictures and point to them and, and say, we think that is what that is. And they the evidence of the damage in the cell culture is evidence that there's a virus. But the problem is they never looked for any other mm-hmm. cause of the damage in the cell culture. And then they know from experiments when they don't put any possible source of a virus in the cell culture, they still get the same results. So the whole thing is misinterpreted, and but it's still put forth as the prima facie evidence of the existence of a virus. And this is perpetuated because of many factors. One is these articles continue to get published and get grant-funded. So if you're a virologist, why would you change things if you can make a living doing it this mm. way? And then for the other people in medicine... Um, like doctors, for example, we're never taught how they discover viruses or prove that they cause disease. We're only taught that this disease is caused by this virus. And so why would we question it? We're told this as if it's the fact. And so the doctors who are have not looked into this and are, are unaware, they basically just don't know that there's no real evidence <sighs> of viruses. They just believe it because that's what they've been told and that's the way the system works and we have all this money's being made based upon this and Mm. all these therapeutics and diagnostics are being used day in and day out.
1: It's like an endless cycle of poor input leading to uh, poor output.
0: Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. Just like what you have with any computer model. Like computer models you see, they've been misused so many times including during this pandemic right when they predicted the crazy numbers of deaths that of course never came to be true and it's because when you make a computer model there are many unknowns and you have to select some known value for the unknown Mm -hmm. otherwise the computer can't calculate the outcome of the model and if you put crappy numbers in there you're going to get crappy output that's not going to mean anything about the real world right and so that's a key key um truism of science and engineering that that you have to know and it's exactly what's gone on in these experiments um, in virology
1: Is, is this what happened uh with the first case so to speak of of um SARS I mean how did it how did it start
0: well you know it's uh it's really quite interesting because they they had a few people who were ill in china who had some kind of atypical pneumonia now this is even though it's called atypical pneumonia it's not really atypical in other words there's lots of cases of atypical pneumonia every year and normally you don't worry about there being some new cause because you know that this is a common thing you're going to see every year especially during flu season and so you just try to take care of the individual people based upon their needs and provide supportive care, right? Um, because it doesn't fit the typical bacterial pneumonia where you would give a certain antibiotic or anything. It's, it's atypical. And so this is, you know, routine business. But in, in China, in this situation, they did something very different. One is, they, they developed suspicion that it was a, a new disease. And then they immediately jumped to the conclusion that it had to be a virus. They didn't spend any time uh, really looking for any uh, of the causes that you might suspect when they originally had this connection to the fish market. So they did do a couple of routine, like, you know, sputum culture for normal bacteria that you would find in pneumonia and stuff like that. And that was negative, but they didn't test for any you know, kind of uh, poison like mercury inhalation or something that might be, you know, if the fi- someone was hammering on the fish or something like that, it could spray up. I mean, you know, just things like that. Um, they just jumped to the, you know, suspicion that this must be a virus. And then there was this communication between um, Drosten in Germany and the scientists in China who were investigating this. And you had Drosten essentially makes up a, you know, quote unquote test uh, using the PCR technology based on, you know, a a genetic sequence that he just took from another virus. Like he said, oh, well, this must I this must be like SARS from 2003, which was a outbreak of a, you know, a small outbreak of some kind of serious pneumonia that had like a 10 percent fatality rate and they supposedly isolated a virus from that and supposedly did a genome sequence and then supposedly developed a PCR test. And so he basically just took those sequences and made a test for a theoretical virus that might be causing people in China to get sick without any evidence to back that up, just a a guess. But then, then they used that test, which was just a guess, and they gave it to the people who had pneumonia, and some of them were positive. And so they said, oh, well, this proves that there's a virus. And then they did this isolation experiment on a couple of them, and showed that they had a toxic cell culture. And so they said, Ha, ah, here is the virus that we've been looking for, which is proved by the, the test that was made by a guess, and then we used the guess to get the results here of a toxic cell culture, right? So essentially we have what you might call in philosophy a tautology. And it has a guaranteed outcome of saying we discovered a new virus that caused the disease because there's no way we could fail. These experiments are guaranteed to be positive, you know, a priori almost. So <laughs> so that was then put out as the initial evidence. And, and here's what's really fascinating because the first paper, that you know said that they isolated uh, this alleged virus, said that there th- that it was it might be associated with this disease. So in other words, they didn't prove a causal relationship, okay? And they said there may be one, but the next paper that came mm-hmm. out, it said this virus is shown to be the cause of, of COVID, and then it referenced the other paper, but the other paper didn't say that. So it's like the it's like the telephone game where like I whisper in your ear and I say, you know, Hey, we found what we think is a virus. And in some of these people with this pneumonia, and then you go to the next person and say, Hey, they found a virus that causes pneumonia. Right. And then like, by the time it gets to the 10th person, it's like viruses cause all pneumonia and cancer. (laughs) Right. So, so that's what happened. And I, I actually, um, documented this chain of events in the the papers uh, in one of my early presentations to show how originally there was essentially an outright lie that then became a rumor and was was rewritten in every subsequent paper as a certainty, but the original reference never made such claims. So it was all just BS, but everyone around the world believed it to be true. And uh, it was Because per- they never looked back to the origin.
1: Yeah, and it was perpetuated by corporate media and, of course, governments.
0: Right. It would be like me saying that I know that Jesus was a real person who walked the earth because you told me, and someone else told you, and someone else told them, and someone else told them who had a, a second cousin whose great-great-great-grandchild met Jesus when he was a baby.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Right. It's like how accurate is that? Would you take that to the bank? Would you, you know, would you change your life based on that? Would you sacrifice your freedoms based on that?
1: Um it's very interesting because if I mean I I I also had uh Roman Bistronic uh who was a co-author of uh, Dissolving Illusions. I think it was what's her name? Suzanne Humphries. I think her name is. The other. Yes. The other. And after looking at the data there the last hundred years of vaccines not a single vaccine has been shown to do what they proposed or what they promised it would do and my my initial response is well if viruses whatever they define them to be do not cause illness what the heck are people being vaccinated against what's going on are they just being injected with some sort of toxin
0: It's not just that that they don't cause those diseases, it's that they don't actually even exist as discrete entities or as they're defined at all. Right. Um, Like I said, there are lots of particles. But, you know, what the intention of the vaccines is very hard for me to say because I haven't heard directly from the people who, you know, are behind this. Um, And it's not, you know, the average person that works at, at Pfizer or Merck. You know, they think they probably think they're doing something good, unless they're at the higher level, and then they they seize the corruption and the greed. Uh, but but the average you know line worker um, sees that, so they're they're just you know not really um, aware of what's going on. But you know, what is the actual outcome of having these massive vaccines? Well, it is essentially causing much chronic disease. And I think there's really there's not conclusive evidence, but there's really, really strong um, uh, what I would call circumstantial scientific evidence uh, to support the causal relationship between vaccines and a lot of neurodegenerative disease, especially obviously autism, but uh, perhaps tick disorders um, and other developmental disorders as well, Uh, also with many autoimmune disorders. And many other conditions, so it is essentially having the effect of causing a lot of chronic illness, and the burden that that puts on society through lost productivity, um, you know, through human suffering, the cost of chronic health care, uh, etc. So it, it's really a big negative for humanity, for sure. And you know, now they're doing things different because they've changed the technology that they're using for vaccines. So that manufacturing technique, that's the virus isolation technique that Ender's developed, that's actually been used to manufacture almost all vaccines until these new genetic technology monstrosities that we've you know, seen in the last two years. And so this changes the game. And of mm-hmm. course it opens the door for some type of genetic alteration of the recipients. I mean, that's the intended purpose although it's you know, said to be for beneficent uh, reasons. Now, we don't have evidence of exactly what it does, but then we also have that there's lots of undisclosed ingredients or technologies that have been mm-hmm. in prior vaccines. Some of these have been uncovered by some scientists in Italy where they, they did X-ray diffraction, um, um, sorry, X-ray spectroscopy, under electron microscopy and found all of these heavy metals present in vaccines that had no explanation, for example. So there's a lot we don't know. And of course, there's a lot of, um, you know, people in this community trying to determine what the constituents are that are undisclosed in these, you know, genetic COVID injections. It's a very challenging scientific question, and I think we don't really still don't know the answer, but we definitely know that there are things in there that just aren't supposed to be in there.
1: I guess the elephant in the room is um, the famous or the infamous postulates that seem to be ignored um, or just changed at will, and by extension, the scientific method has that also been largely ignored?
0: Well, I would go even more broadly that you know logic is being ignored, and the philosophy of science, right? which is kind of defines the scientific method. And the philosophy of science is essentially the philosophy to um, move forward the discovery of understanding and how nature works. That's really mm. the goal of science, right? is to understand. How, how nature works and all the various aspects of nature. But in order to make sure that we are understanding things in a truthful way, that we have real depth of understanding, right? the job of all scientists is always to challenge the status quo. So someone comes up with a, a hypothesis and then they develop it into a theory, and then everyone else is supposed to challenge it and try to disprove it. And if they're unable to disprove it, that's when we get into a situation where we find the truth about nature. And now we're in the opposite situation where we have this, um, gold rush in the publishing industry because of, you know, really because of the internet that the number of scientific publications expanded exponentially and they needed papers to publish in order to generate their ad revenue or their subscription revenue to the libraries and there simply wasn't enough quality control and then we ended up in a situation that you know the famous epidemiologist and statistician uh, professor Ioanidas from Stanford University you know published that more than half of all published research is false so why is it you know why is it so shocking that these virology papers are false Right, if if the probability of a paper being false is more than 50 percent. So this we, we have a, a crisis in science here with you know no integrity in the published findings. And you know, think about it. If you if you're an engineer and you're charged with using the laws of science or the, the discoveries of science to build a device or a technology, you're intrinsically accountable to that because if you build a device right like let's say it's a microphone so you build a microphone using the laws of acoustics and physics and electricity and magnetism and then you plug it in to the amplifier and you try to record it if it doesn't work you failed <laughs> that means whatever principle you you used it was wrong you made a mistake right I mean you could have made a mistake where you just you know connected the wire to the wrong place but you also could have used the wrong scientific principle or the wrong equation mm-hmm. and made a mistake. But you know you're wrong because the microphone doesn't work. And if it does work, you know you're right because you can't fool mother nature into making the microphone work if you didn't get it right. But with science where we're just trying to discover things and not build a device or develop a technology, what, where is the accountability? To our finding, to our interpretation of the data. It's so, it's not intrinsically present. And in many areas of research, they're so compartmentalized that no one else is interested in that or doing the same research. So there's not even someone available to try and repeat the experiment and validate the results. But that everything has to be repeated. And in order to be validated, if to know that it really you know that that first of all that they really got those results that they didn't just fake it or that they didn't for, you know forget to um, plug in the refrigerator and you know everything got spoiled <laughs> and then that gave them anomalous data and they interpreted it as being meaningful right so the only way you know that is if other people repeat the same experiment and then get the same results and then there has to be like some agreement about how to interpret that and usually that's by doing confirmatory experiments um, you know, to say, okay, this is why that happened. And now it makes sense. And that just isn't being done, you know, for almost anything. And so there's no accountability. And it's easy to publish. And so we have basically all of this false information out there that's being put out there as real science. And, you know, they, and the media moguls say, trust the science and the politicians say, trust the science, but the, the science is not trustworthy. And what they really mean anyway is trust what we tell you. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the science itself that's out there right now is far, far from trustworthy in total.
1: But how do you deal with the very large number of, of anecdotal responses that go something like this? Yes, but my whole family got sick at the same time. Uh, there's your evidence or my church, you know everybody got sick at the same time um, with similar symptoms. How, do, how does? Sure. What's going on then?
0: Well, I think, you know, you have to sort of break away a little bit from the spell that ever since you were a baby, you're told that, you know, this is how disease spreads. And then realize that that's actually not the only way to interpret that. Like you have to actually think. So if a bunch of people get sick together there could be many explanations for that. Um, and you, and you have to think, okay, well, what are the possible explanations and is there any other evidence to back any of those things up? Right? Because like, as Tom Cowan pointed out, if you think that just a group of people getting sick at the same time mean that it was caused by a germ or a virus, then you'd have to think that, um, that, you know, Nagasaki in Japan, when everyone was sick, that was from a virus and not from an atomic bomb being dropped right? Because they all got sick at the same time. Or that everyone who got sick after eating at one restaurant that they all got, you know, vomiting and diarrhea, that that wasn't caused by a virus either. That was caused by food poisoning, right? So there's other ways to explain things. And a common exposure to something is one way that actually explains a lot of these phenomena. Um, but there are, are yet other explanations, because we we know that, other bodily functions actually are contagious and disease is actually not contagious. So for example, we, we know from experience and from scientific studies that laughter, um, yawning and even vomiting are contagious, that one person can do it and then it spreads to another person and another person and more and more people. And you can, do experiments where you can see that happen in real time. You can videotape it, document it. Now, you don't know exactly what the agent is that is passing. Like it, it could be, um, you know, some kind of electromagnetic wave that comes off of your body, right? Like, like you would see in an EKG, for example, right? That's an electric uh, field that you're seeing on the paper. Or it could be a pheromone. Right, which is like the little chemicals that come out of your armpits, right? We don't know, but it could be any number of things. Um, And, but with diseases, they've tried many times to do experiments where they get someone sick, they take their secretions, their snot, and they give it to someone else, even inject it in other people in some of these experiments. And they just can't make anyone sick that way. So it just can't be that way since they if it was that way they'd be really easy to do an experiment with that and then you know you also just have common everyday evidence that contradicts people passing disease because if you go to the er and see all the people that work there the nurses the x-ray techs the doctors mm. the phlebotomists etc everyone who has the flu comes into their presence and they have to interact with they have to touch they have to be around right and they never get the flu and this was true even before the flu shot okay so don't say it's from the flu shot so why don't they get the flu they should be the ones sick all the time i need to push back i think
1: there is a virus i mean i saw some people wearing a mask and suddenly everybody was wearing a mask andy
0: (laughs) yes well that's the the wetiko mind virus um (laughs) And, you know, I mean, this, this idea of something spreading like wildfire, it does happen in nature, right? That's why we have the expression that I just said about wildfire. And we, we see this happen in our world of media production, right? On, on YouTube and other platforms, right? Where some important or trendy thing comes out and it go and it spreads like crazy, right? And we say that that's going viral. The problem is, this is a natural phenomenon. It's just there is no viruses. So, uh, other than you know, like you might have a computer virus, right, which is named after that. the The word originally uh, means poison, interestingly, sure. and that's what what I um, my opinion my current opinion is that the real cause of disease is essentially poisoning, and that can happen through a couple of different pathways, like. For example, through dehydration, which concentrates, you know, waste products and toxins. But essentially, you know, that my opinion is that's what really causes the illness. And then, of course, that could also explain when people get sick together that they're all exposed to the same poison. Uh, Or an alternative explanation is, is that one person having a poison in their body, they send a signal to other people in their area saying, hey, you could have been exposed to this poison too, and then their body tries to detox from it, right? And that's that would be a survival advantage. Um, and we know that this happens in microorganism species. For example, like in the mycelium, the part of the fungus or the fungal stage that is embedded in a network with all the plant and tree roots can communicate like when there's a disease that one tree, like like there's an invasive uh, parasitic insect, for example, right? And when that insect attacks one tree, other trees in the area get the information and they take steps to protect themselves against it, right? And that's not caused by a virus. That's the communication network of those organisms in a community to help protect the health of the entire community. So there could be mechanisms like that that we have that we just haven't uncovered yet because we haven't looked for them because we've, you know, had this false belief that germs are the explanation, so we don't need to look for any other explanations.
1: I suppose it goes without saying that the principle of this conversation extends to beyond viruses. I mean, to any of kind of germ.
0: Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, so there's, there are some differences because the other things that are called germs and, you know, germ is another word whose meaning has changed because it means new life, uh, really like the egg cell is called a germ cell, but the germs in terms of microorganisms aside from viruses, right, there are essentially bacteria and fungi. There may be some Uh, amoeba and other single-celled organisms uh, as well, but in general, bacteria and and fungi. And the difference between those and viruses is those are actually real things. (laughs) So, So you can actually find bacteria, you can grow it in a culture, you can look at it by itself, you can take it apart and examine what it's made of, you can sequence the genetic material that's inside the bacterial cells. So all of of that is established um, and real. What the part of it that's not proven and is not true is that those things don't cause any diseases. They come around as a result of disease, just like firefighters don't cause fires, but they're always around putting out the fire. So the bacteria are kind of like the firefighters of disease in a sense. Although they, they may be responsible for some of our symptoms, they essentially are trying to help us restore our health, and they're just misinterpreted, um, whereas viruses haven't even been shown to be real, let alone be present um, you know, during an illness or have anything to do with any illnesses.
1: So if viruses are not real, then what is all the talk about virions?
0: Well, virion is just a word for an individual particle of a virus. So virus is the plural, virion is the singular.
1: Right. And then just for the sake of clarity, what is an exosome?
0: Well, an exosome is a a particle that comes out of a cell that is essentially fits the same exact definition of a virus, except for the um, making copies of itself part, but it's the same size and shape made of the, said to be made of the same things. But exosomes are actually real, um, because they have been purified directly from humans and animals. Okay. They didn't have to be grown in a culture or anything ridiculous like that. And since they were purified, they were then could be characterized in other words it, you could tell exactly what they're made of because you just have one thing in your test tube mm. and so whatever material is in there it's part of that one thing whereas viruses yeah. have never been purified where they you have them by themselves because they don't actually exist they say it's impossible to do that because there aren't enough. And then, but then, other virologists like Luc Montagnier said that you have to purify it; otherwise, you can't tell if it's real, uh, which is actually the truth. And funny so they, that he said that. Yeah, I know because he didn't actually purify HIV, which is what he got the Nobel Prize for. So it was like it was an honest disclosure, but he didn't apply it to himself directly. But <laughs> he he said it on camera, fortunately, so you can. Uh, watch it. I have the video. <laughs> um,
1: I want to horseshoe back quickly to a comment that you made earlier about genome sequencing. How reliable is genome sequencing?
0: Well, it depends what you're sequencing and how you're doing it, because it can be very quite reliable. Um, you know, they did this with the human genome. It took uh, quite a long time because they had this old technology called Sanger sequencing, which you could basically only take one long piece and sequence it one base at a time. So it was very, very slow because, you know, there's like billions and billions of bases in the human. So now what they do is they would take the human DNA and they would chop it up into smaller pieces, but they would know exactly how they cut it up because they made specific cuts. It would be like a carpenter taking a 12 foot. Board and cutting it into one-foot lengths right so that they could and then making a special mark in each piece So they could put it back together at the end so they would do that and then they could Sequence all of those pieces at once in parallel on a special two-dimensional array So I hope that's not too complicated to understand, but it's just like having parallel processors Versus serial processors for the computer nerds out there (laughs) and so if you start with a human and just take the DNA from a human only, and then go through that process, it's pretty accurate, right? But that's not what they do for viruses because they, they, they don't get a virus by itself. So when they take genetic material, it could be from a virus and it could be from who knows what other organisms. They they, there's nothing purified about it. So they have a mixture of genetic material from unknown origin. Mm. And they essentially use computers. And sometimes they actually have multiple computers with multiple software doing this simultaneously to see which one gives them the output that they want, uh, which is, you know, a sign that what they're doing is not scientific. And... The, the computer sort of you know, makes up that all these, these pieces, it puts, tries to put them together like a puzzle and says they must have all come from one thing since they fit together in this way. But the thing is that the computer fits them together in a million and a half different ways. So how do you know which is the right way? How do you know which one comes from one thing? It's, you know, it's just essentially a big mess. It's, it's not scientific at all. And th- this is the only way that they can overcome the problem that they don't actually have a virus to start with. So you can't study a virus or any other creature unless you have that creature. If you don't have the creature, whatever you're studying, who knows what it is? And that's what's gone on in virology, not in bacteriology. In bacteriology, they have the bacteria. They can actually study it and learn about it. So that that's different. That's a real thing. But in this area of virology, you know, it's just not real. So exosomes are real. They can purify them. They can have them. They can take them apart and analyze exactly what they're made of. They can tell what they can sequence the genetic material. They can match it up with the origin of it in the cell. Like, did it come from the mitochondria or the nucleus, et cetera? And so, so that, that research is valid. If they applied the same methods to viruses and got the same results, I wouldn't be sitting here telling you that there are no viruses. I would be telling you that viruses are valid. So it's, they have the, experiment, the experimental techniques. They have the technology to do this real science with viruses. They just can't because if they did, they would show that viruses don't exist and they would show it clearly. If they were able to, if viruses were real, they would just do that because they already do it with exosomes. And then it would be legitimate. And, you know, we could um, then go on to further studies. I thought. Right. I but think, it's just that they don't do that.
1: I think you just gave the kill shot. <laughs> um, Andy, do we have an immune system?
0: Well, we have white blood cells, Um, you know, we have antibodies, but they're not the way that they're described. Uh, So they're not a militaristic self-defense arsenal, (laughs) (laughs) they're not there to kill things. They are there to facilitate our life functions and they do, you know, they do great things. So whenever foreign material enters our body, those cells respond. They, there are cells that eat up foreign material, um, like some of them are called macrophages, for example, or phagocytes is the general term. There are cells that come and make antibodies and antibodies are these sticky proteins that just bind up any foreign material and neutralize it and tag it. So it could be removed for waste disposal, right? So this is a, a really important part of our body, but it's, you know, there is a lot of just false notions about it. So one is it's not the antagonist of the germ. It's not a military defense system. And also, you can't just boost the health of your immune system selectively out of your body. right? It's like that. that's a marketing strategy that's talked about a lot, you know, support your immune health, boost your immune system, blah, 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 this or that. Your immune system is part of your whole body. If your whole body is healthy, your immune system is healthy. You can't just make your immune system healthy at the expense of the rest of your body. It's part of the whole. So the message should be: improve your health, <laughs> not boost your immune system.
1: Okay, I know you have to leave in a few minutes, and I know you were wanting me to uh, to to give you this comment or this question. Um, so I'm going to give you lots of time for this, but how do we make people realize all of this? That is what you were hoping I was going to ask you, right?
0: Yes. Yes, exactly. So, Okay. so So all
1: right. So, so the question is how do we get people to understand this?
0: So one thing is important is that, that it, this is not something that we should be putting a lot of conscious effort into because you can't convince people or badger them or, you know, or anything, win any arguments this way, or even open up the discussion. So you have to be receptive to when people are open. But what I, I remembered a story um, from earlier in my life, you know, and it was how um, my children's mother and I decided about our birth plan, because we're we're both doctors. So we're, you know, came up in the medical model. We both did our, you know, OBGYN rotations where we helped deliver babies and saw how that whole, you know, business works and we were planning to do things the normal ways, you know, upholding truth to our values as doctors. And then she happened upon this book, I think someone might have recommended it, and and it's a book called Ina May's Guide to Childbirth. And it essentially is, Ina May is a a midwife, like in a rural area in southern United States, And it's just birthing stories. So it's her telling the stories of the clients she worked with in their home births. And just hearing these stories was so compelling to her that she wanted to do a home birth. Just because hearing the joy and the experience that these mothers went through and these families went through having a home birth. And she was willing to go against her firm medical beliefs and her identity as a doctor in order to experience that. And then, you know, then I did some research on the science of it and found out that actually home births have better outcomes than hospital births. And so it was really easy for us to decide, and both of our kids were, were born by home birth. So this hit me again recently because, you know, I, I work with educating clients about natural healing, you know. Uh, people who realize that the mainstream health system is not really providing uh, the health that they need. Mm. And one of the things that happens is that sometimes someone who is skeptical and really dug into mainstream health comes into my sphere wanting my opinion, and I realize it's because they met someone in their life who did some natural healing protocol and got healthy. And they don't, they believe in everything in the mainstream. They don't never question anything, but then they see their neighbor, their friend, their you know, bingo partner or whatever suddenly recover and have this amazing health outcome. And they're like, what did they do? I want to do that. Mm -hmm. And so it's having that experience. And I'll tell you, I've seen countless people have that experience where they're suffering with all these maladies, the mainstream has no, no cure, nothing really to offer. They come, they do some natural healing and they're completely recovered. And then they tell everyone about their journey and that's where the power is. And that when people see that, they're gonna want some of that. And that's how I think people eventually yes. can let go of this false paradigm and learn how to really let their bodies heal and achieve a level of health and vitality they thought was not possible for them.
1: That's Walking how the talk.
0: this is going to catch on, yes. And you know, they just have to see one person in their life with this example, and mm-hmm. that could be enough you know, to turn around a dozen people, and then each one of those turns around a dozen, and, and that's how this can spread in a viral manner.
1: Uh, um, where can people follow your work?
0: Well, uh, please do come to my uh, main website at Uh Join my library, which has a free membership at truemedicinlibrary.com And please um, see the film Terrain on Be Sovereign on Iconic TV and also at terrainthefilm.com. You can find links to all those. You can actually even do a screening anywhere in the world. We've had a uh, screening in Mexico We have a couple more uh, planned, I believe in Eastern Europe. So anyone can get a license, do a screening. I can even come on for a Q and A remotely, or even in person if you're not too, maybe not to South Africa. But um, although if you wanna pay my travel, I would. (laughs) (laughs) So, but you know, um, it's important to get that out there. And I just wanna mention that I have a workshop on water where I'm gonna teach you actually how to properly hydrate yourself, which we none of us, even I didn't know really until recently and how important that is to your health uh, coming up Jan, June 25th. So all that'll be on my website so you can find out about it. And uh, you know, I hope you uh, come and attend some of these uh, educational events.
1: Andrew Kaufman, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me in the trenches.
0: It's been my pleasure as well.
1: Don't go anywhere. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare. The Battle of If
0: you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.